to another episode of Rockstar Violinist, the podcast from Electric Violin Shop that brings you well, all the cool kids. If you're a little confused right now, that's okay. What you're listening to is not a modern rock tune, nor is it a violin. This is Vivaldi's Concerto in A minor for Viola de More. What? Well, this is part two of my chat with Rachel Barton Pine. If you missed part one, I'm going to highly recommend that you go back and listen to that first. All of this is going to make a lot more sense. That We're listening to music that's written in the early 1700s, played on an instrument that probably 90% of violinists couldn't even identify if they saw it. Trust me, Rachel is a rock star through and through. If you listen to part one, you already know that. So I'm going to shut up and let you listen to part two of Rachel Barton Pine, Rockstar Violinist. So at what point in your musical development did you discover, I mean, you were playing the violin six, eight hours a day as a little kid. When did you discover Megadeth and when did you discover Black Sabbath? How, how did that happen? And when did you start to go, you know, I think I could play this on my violin. Yeah, so that's a really fun story. So basically, Santa Claus brought me a transistor radio when I was 10, and I mm. started scrolling up and down the dial. I, I basically listened to mostly classical music my entire life, whether it was the radio in the car, the radio at home. You know, my parents would have it on the classical station, but occasionally they would get out their old blues records, and, um, you know, I, the, they were big blues fans before I came along, and they would always go out to blues bars before before parenthood. So, right. um, and the Chicago blues is just kind of in the air. It's like mm. our our local music. Um, so I was familiar with that, but had, hadn't really. You know, I was young enough that my dad, you know, kind of refrained from turning on the classic rock station in the car when he would drive me places. He would keep it on the classical station. So, <laughs> so it was really really fascinating to just discover all these other worlds. And you know, we're talking about '80s pop and you know, whatever else, but I particularly, you know, in those days, top 40 was not as segmented, right? You would have a Guns N' Roses right. tune and then a Madonna tune and then a whatever. Right. So I was really drawn to like the, you know, the, the mainstream hard rock that I was hearing, Van Halen and ACDC and Aerosmith and uh, whatever. And then um, there was a station that I discovered that would come on at the end of the dial at 10 p.m. every night. And it would play like, you know, Anthrax, Sepultura, early Metallica, you know, all that good stuff, you know, and then like Maiden, Priest, all those bands. And I was like... Headbangers Ball. Yeah, well, basically the, you know, the local radio equivalent. And I was just like, whoa, like, I just was like, what is this music? This is, this is my music. And um, not to take away from, and classical is my first love, but the thing is I could never listen to classical for pleasure at the end of the day when I wanted to relax because... If it was a piece I knew, I would be analyzing the interpretation. If it was a piece I didn't know, I would be analyzing the construction. I couldn't turn off the analytical side of my brain. But when I would listen to metal, I would just like turn my brain off and rock out. And oddly enough, that made it more relaxing. You know, I was like, bah, bah, you know, and I'm like, oh, now I can relax. I, that sounds so silly, but that was like, because somehow like a lot of the pop stuff was just too, I don't know, simplistic. So I thought that I loved metal because it was as far away from classical as you could get. And it wasn't until I started actually playing it on my violin that I was like, well, duh. Obviously, I loved, you know, um, speed metal and some of these things because they're, like, pretty darn close to classical right. and inspired by classical. Um, and the reason I started playing on my violin, like, it never, it literally never occurred to me to play anything but classical on my violin for my entire childhood. I never tried to, you know, play along to a song from the radio. I never... Um, played any fiddle tunes, nothing, 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 which is kind of sad when you think about it. I was improving with early music, so I was, you know, getting my jam on, rocking out to Corelli, but, um, <laughs> you know, I was not, you know, doing these, these things, and um, just because, not that I thought about doing them and decided not to, like, I literally never, never, it never occurred to me to do it, because um, I was just in this elite classical world, and, like, yeah, and in those days, that was how it was. So what happened is I was invited to perform the national anthem for a Chicago Bulls playoff game in 95. And that was in the Michael Jordan era. I got to meet oh, Michael yeah. and Scotty and um, Dennis Rodman and all the guys, and I got, like, awesome seats for the game, and it was just, like, the greatest moment. First time playing my violin in front of 20,000 people at once. Um, you know, boom mic. <laughs> and, but it was also broadcast on television for millions of people. 
And this was a life-changing moment. I'm not talking about like me being better known or whatever else. I was already pretty well known in town, which is how I got the gig in the first place. But um, what happened is that I started getting strangers coming up to me on the street going, whoa, I saw you on the bulls. I never realized that the violin was so cool. Because what I had done is, you know, the Star Spangled Banner played straight on the violin is like a Suzuki book one first position snoozer. Um, so I had made this like Paganini version of it where I was like, you know, wild triple stops and, you know, tenths and, you know, left-hand pizzicato and like everything I could throw in there to just be like this total shreddy, you know, but, you know, classical kind of, you know, just thing that I did um, in, you know, one and a half minutes worth. Okay, I know we just started, but I could not let Rachel talk about her version of the Star Spangled Banner and not play it. So here it is. And, right. you know, before then, I had had this attitude that, okay, people either like classical or they don't. And if you can, you know, get to them as kids, and I was, you know, really into doing outreach, going into schools whenever I would go to a town and play with an orchestra. Um, but, you know, if you can't, like, hook them as kids, it's kind of a lost cause. Like, if they're not a classical fan, they're not a classical fan. And that was where it ended. And then I realized, wait a sec, all these people seemed to be so excited about the violin for my 90-second national anthem. Like, i got to do something about this. And I started to think about it. I was like, you know, a lot of people have a misconception about classical music. Of course, the cliches that you have to put on a suit and tie to go to the concert. Um, and, you know, maybe they've heard, this is almost like a, you know, a, a bad thing. Like, they've heard, you know, sleepy strings, Pachelbel cannon in a dentist's waiting room or a hotel lobby. They've heard soaring strings on a movie soundtrack, which, of course, is exactly what you know, what's-his-name did to Metallica's SNM, which was such a travesty. He should have been having the entire violin section playing the riffs, and instead they're playing these, you know, beautiful long notes above the riffs. And I'm like, oh, no, you just perpetuated the cliche when you had the opportunity to... <laughs> oh, my God, I hated that album. I know a lot of people love it, but, you know, for me it was all wrong. Anyway, um, <laughs> not that I feel strongly about that or anything. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so I, I started to think, okay, maybe I can, like, you know, get adults excited about, you know, my peers um, excited about, like, um, classical music, about the violin, because the violin does rock out, you know? I mean, there's nothing more intense than hearing an entire orchestra play a Mahler symphony. Like, yeah. I gotta got, get them to the hall. How am I gonna do this? So, I started going on rock radio stations, and I would play, you know, some licks of whatever, um, you know, a bit of Zeppelin or something, and then I would, like, play some Paganini and be like, hey, come to my Brahms concerto tomorrow. And, um, <laughs> It, yeah, it started to really work, and then people were like, "Where can you buy my, buy me? Um, where can I buy your album?" And that's why I made this cover album uh, with my friend Edgar Gabriel, one of the great improvising violinists here in Chicago, um, one of the greatest blues violinists anywhere. Um, really amazing guy. And then Brandon Vamos from the Pacifica Quartet, 
top, top, you know, internationally and international level chamber cellist. And we, I, I did these string trio versions, and it was an interesting project. I did this in '97, and I was literally the first person to try to play speed metal on unplugged acoustic violin and figure out how that could work. Um, and you know, do all this you know acoustic distortion and things like that. It was just at the time that Apocalyptica was coming out, but of course they were doing it electric. So we were mm-hmm. really breaking new ground. Now, of course, people who've really you know dug into that have gone so much far- farther, like Earl with his Seven Sons string quartet. But you know, but we were we were um, pioneers um, in those days and um, figuring it out from scratch. And um, it's funny because I actually did the opposite of promoting the album. I like literally didn't allow it to be in stores like you know it was like there for people who really wanted it because you know they were looking for it and to serve that outreach purpose but I didn't want knowledge of it to like leak out to the classical industry in such a way that they would be like oh I'm not going to book her to play the prompts so it was like so that's how bad the world used to be in a way you know now orchestras would be like this is awesome we can use this to help you know sell your Brahms performance but it wasn't we weren't there yet um in the late 90s, so I had to like, I had this like album that could have been this, I mean, we sold 10,000 units with no advertising, with like wow. negative advertising, with like, oh no, no, please don't mention my album. <laughs> like, it's kind of crazy to think of, um, but yeah. Did you was, even think about doing a pseudonym for that? No, no, because I did want, I mean, I wanted to be that outreach thing, like, you know, hey, Rachel is doing this and, you know, here's a classical, because the message was, here's a, a classical violinist who loves metal and loves classical, and maybe if you love metal, maybe you can check out her classical and check out classical in general and like lead people there. So it had to be me. And in fact, my next album was the Instrument of the Devil album um, that, um, yeah, the one that Pantera loved, actually. <laughs> I got this call, um, and this guy you know, was like, must have got my number from you know the phone because I wasn't I wasn't unlisted. Um, he must have you know got from in those days from the white pages or something. Uh, he was like, "Hey, I'm Pantera's manager. They want to invite you to their show." And I was like, "Yeah, right. Okay, who are you? Why are you spoofing me?" And he's like, "No, serious." And yeah, so they had like been listening to my records and um, gave me box seats, and we were like all hanging out with Dime and the guys and. You know, my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, was like, what's going on here? (laughs) I mean, such interesting. I just love, and I'm not saying that to, like, brag on myself in any way. I'm I'm just pointing out, like, how awesome it is that these great musicians that I admire from the metal realm um, were, you know, were and are interested in classical music, which I also love so deeply. And so, yeah, so we were... We were um, experimenting and, and trying this all out, and um, I actually it was with Edgar um, Edgar Gabriel that I played my very first ever metal riffs of my entire life uh, when mm. we did a, a, a couple of his arrangements of Black Sabbath for one of my earliest rock radio appearances. I wasn't comfortable enough to carry it a cappella, so I was like, Edgar, come and help me. And he's like, Okay, here's this version of Paranoid, and let's let's do that. And um, of course. Sabbath being Sabbath, I'm I'm glad that that was my baptism. Um, yeah, of course. <laughs> and I then, you know, made sure that my daughter um, started playing some Sabbath riffs when she had enough chops at age six or whatever to start to delve in. And, um. Well, the uh, the Asta performance, I guess, what a year and a half ago in Albuquerque, that you that you did was sort of like almost the history of string music, right? Sort of went from Baroque yeah, all the way right. to Black Sabbath. <laughs> And uh, and that was that was really amazing. I, I got a chance to play on stage with you and with Sylvia and, and all those people. And uh, speaking of Sylvia, you're growing like a serious weapon in her. <laughs> so uh, for people who don't know, your daughter's nine years old, right? Same age as my daughter, and she's been playing like her entire life. Yeah, you can check out sylviapine.com and of course her YouTube channel. But she sings, she composes, she plays all kinds of different stuff on her violins and um yeah, yeah she's got um did i already say this i this is my third talk of the day so pardon me <laughs> um, yeah she has you know yeah, she's got a number of instruments yeah, right so now she's going to switch from half size to three quarter i got to get her four new instruments which yeah. i'm angsting about a bit but right. so it goes but i've yeah, it's just so exciting. She, she constantly keeps me challenged, not only in figuring out how best to nurture and educate her, like, you know, every parent has to figure out um, 
you know, just because I'm a musician doesn't mean I know any better what to do with her because she's not the same kind, you know, people think, oh, you play the violin, she plays the violin, she's a mini, a mini me or a carbon copy. Not at all. She's a totally different personality and being raised in a totally different world. So there's a lot to figure out. Um, and, you know, and then just her creativity is off the charts and she gets that from my husband. Um, you know, she'll be practicing her scales and she'll decide to add interludes between each key as she's going up the strings. And I have to restrain myself from that, you know, old fashioned, like, no, do your scales. It's like, okay, no, wait, she's, she's in tune. She has a straight bow. Her actual scales are exactly what they should be. And she's adding interludes. And why the hell should I let her add interludes? And yeah, exactly. that's actually what Isai would have done. He wrote, you know, he, I mean, there's a tradition from the 19th century of violinists improving in their classical recitals in the key of the piece they're about to play as a lead-in to their composed piece. And I'm like, wait a sec, this is like the best thing she could be doing. And it's such a, such a shift in my thinking, you know, through her, even as much as I've been around the improvising world for so many years now, starting at the Mark O'Connor fiddle camps. Um. Here is a recording of Rachel playing Sylvia's composition entitled Theme and Variations on the Glow of the Lamp from one of her many quarantine live streams. Sylvia was eight when she wrote this. By the way, it was that Bulls game that got me invited to Mark O'Connor's faculty because he's oh, okay. a big baseball, a basketball fan, and he saw me performing my thing at the game, and then he heard that I was playing some rock stuff, and then he like invited me to to go to his fiddle camps as as one of the faculty, which opened up my world to all these other like Appalachian, Klezmer, all this stuff. Oh my god, um, there's so yeah. many styles. That, yeah, endless. That I, I endless. can't even tell the difference. They just they all sound the same to me, but I'm sure like to to non metalheads. All the metal sounds the same. You're like, no, those songs aren't anything like each other. I used to think all country sounded the same. Then I'm like, wait, yeah. Cajun doesn't sound anything like Texas Swing. What was I thinking? Um, but yeah. Um, yeah and, and, oh, I have to tell you the best story. Um, so, I was, so when I was 15, um, I won the senior division of the Chicago Symphony's concerto competition and got to solo with the Chicago Symphony in their big hall. Um, and then fast forward, you know, maybe half a dozen years, they decided to renovate their hall. And they were doing 24 hours of music, and I was soloing in a concerto in Orlando that afternoon. I was able to get a flight that would land me just to play for the final 24th hour. And mm. so I decided to do a retrospective of all my concerts in that hall up till then. Mm. So excerpts of various things I had soloed with the Chicago Symphony over the years, or things that my little baby violin group used to do with, with our year-end concert when they would rent the hall. You know, just all different things. And for, um, I had played Carmen Fantasy that, that day when I was 15, and it was also broadcast on television. So they did a little profile of each young artist um, who was playing that night. And as part of my profile, I had, in, um, it was showing me, remember those crocheted violins I was telling you about? Mm -hmm. So it showed me sitting there crocheting a violin and um, playing on my, my very 1990 boombox was, um, I wanted something without lyrics just because, you know. So I had the instrumental last section of Metallica's One um, blasting mm. away. But, what that, but it turned out that they showed not only on the broadcast version, but they had a big screen that they lowered down in back of the Chicago Symphony in Orchestra Hall, and they played for the, the live in-person audience the same artist profiles before each young artist stepped out onto stage to play their solo that night. 
So what this meant is that Metallica's one got blasted out into Chicago Symphony's Hall with the Chicago Symphony sitting there, thanks to me. Um, awesome. So then I was playing this retrospective concert, and I played um, a chamber version that I had made of Metallica's one, followed, of course, by the Carmen Fantasy, and talked about how I had played with them that night when I was 15. About six months later, I was at a society event with a number of wealthy arts donors, and this old lady, you know, sort of the cliche of the downtown patroness, you know, with the furs and the diamonds and the whole thing, and, you know, wonderful lady, and she comes up to me, and she says, you know, I was at your Chicago Symphony, um, or, you know, your orchestra hall performance recently, and I particularly loved that modern rock and roll number that you played, and I liked it so much that I went and I bought the record. Now, my actual um, trio record had not yet come out. So what this means is that she actually bought Justice. She went and bought Metallica, yeah. And she's, and she's very politely said, it didn't quite sound the same. And <laughs> I was like, oh dear, <laughs> this is not the outreach I'm intending to do. <laughs> That's but, awesome. But what I love about that story, besides the, you know, the, the comical element of this, this lady accidentally buying you know, a Metallica album, is the fact that she liked the piece in its, in yeah. its chamber version. And, you know, we didn't play it classical. I think you, it is classicized when people take the notes of a rock tune and then they play it in a kind of snotty sort of, you know, right. cl like the cliche of what classical music actually shouldn't be kind of way. Um, right. <laughs> the sn snobby, refined, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. But no, we were, we were jamming just as hard as we would have been if we'd been playing it on our Vipers. And yeah, and she liked, I mean, it was like Bartok, right? There's a headbanging right. moment in every single one of Bartok's compositions um, that just like pounds away. And um, yeah, I love it that this that this lady liked it as music. And it just shows you that if people are open-minded and and um, exposed to things, you know, they can end up liking it. Another favorite moment was when I won the Great Performer of Illinois Award here in my state and got to do a show out at M Millennium Park, um, the Pritzker Pavilion. And it was just like the Asta, except you know, full-fledged. So I had my whole Baroque trio with harpsichord and everything, um, and. It was actually like three concerts, except I had to play them all, and I was so exhausted by the end. And then the Illinois Symphony came from downstate from the Capitol at Springfield, and they played the Tchaikovsky with me. We had a Vivaldi four violin concerto with three of my foundation recipients. And then we ended with my band, Earth and Grave, whose name I've neglected to say up to this point. Please forgive me, guys. Um, but Earth and Grave, my, my doom band, um, played, played the last hour. And actually, Three different costume changes, three different instruments. It was super fun. I didn't do costume changes at ASTA because, right. you know, no time. Um, and what was cool is that all these Earth and Grave fans only knew me as the violinist from Earth and Grave. They didn't even know I was, like, a well-known classical soloist. Um, and they showed up early to get a good seat for the mosh pit and, like, basically accidentally heard the Tchaikovsky concerto. And there was this great moment at, in the cadenza where it's, like, just all flashy and wild. And they started cheering. And it actually, rather than feeling that where we don't like sacrilegious, right, rather than right. feeling wrong or inappropriate or ignorant or anything, it actually felt so right. Like, yeah, you should cheer during that moment. I mean, there's a lot of classical you should be quiet for and catch the nuances and stuff. And, you know, just like a good, you know, intimate, you know, jazz room where you, you want to be quiet till right after the solo. But then right after the solo, you do want to applaud even though the music is continuing. And this is the same in opera. Why the heck shouldn't it be the same in a concerto? And it sure. was that night, and I loved it. And at the same time, you had, you know, the classical fans who'd shown up for the first two sets who would never be brave enough to go to a rock club and, you know, hear a metal band in their own, you know, in its own, you know, space because they would be like, oh my gosh, there's going to be all these scary tattooed people who might be right. crashing into me. Like, I don't want to go there. get mugged. Yeah. But here they were and they just stayed in their seat and accidentally heard Earth and Grave and really, really liked the music. So I was like, wow, this just, you know, I love those moments. We can, we can all kind of come together and, and break down those barriers and it, it almost makes me think about what you've been doing with your Facebook like actually one of the few people who's been who's effectively made um, 
you know, posts that actually work, where you're able to bridge the divide between liberals and conservatives and have everybody say, oh, yeah, that's, that's a good point, Matt, and from both sides of the aisle. And I've just been so um, loving reading your posts lately. It's kind of cathartic. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's a crazy world we live in. But I think, like, musically, there's so many... It, it's not surprising at all for me, who's a classically trained violinist and a metalhead, to see the crossover between the two. Like, to me, it would be way stranger if you were into, like, I don't know, like, rap. Because there's, like, metal and classical are so similar. You see what Ingve Malmsteen is doing with the neoclassical thing, or, or uh, you know, Eddie Van Halen was, was throwing... Um, um, Kreutzer into um, into eruption. The, it's all the. It's really a lot the same. Absolutely, and and for the record, I do enjoy you know a certain amount of club music. Um, not all the whatever is on the radio at any given moment, but you know, um, I can appreciate some some good stuff of a whole bunch of different genres, including hip hop. Thank you very much. But um, yeah, I'm not like the most knowledgeable about it or whatever, but I don't dislike it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's also maybe my personality. Well, I'm a redhead. So are you? Um, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't want to be. You know, and, and Dave Mustaine, we, we all got to hang out. Exactly. Exactly. Um, people would be like, oh, you've got Dave Mustaine and Axl Rose on your wall. You must have crushes on them. And I'm like, Heck no, I just want to be them, uh, yeah. you know, and be them in my classical performances. And that was actually, you know, the inspiration that I always got from my favorite bands. Because we do, you know, even, bef you know, before these days where it's gotten even so much worse with the, you know, the focus on perfection. But you still, you know, I, it's like a, a figure skater, if they fall on their rear end in the middle of a, of a jump, that doesn't add flavor to their performance. You know, but if right. Jimmy Page is all sloppy, it actually sounds cool. And I have to practice being sloppy if I'm going to play a Jimmy Page solo, because if I sound too clean, it sounds sterile. Um, so, you know, there's that where you, we have to be, and it's the same with, I mean, you know, a lot of the, um, I mean, you can get into soulless genres like TDM, but, um, you know, a lot of the, the speed stuff, you do have to be, you know, pretty clean and accurate and, um, but not like, I mean, the bar for classical is so freaking high, you know, and then to go out on stage and let loose in the face of this, you know, you've got to remind yourself, okay, whatever I did in the practice room is what's going to happen. I can't fix it now, so I might as well just roll with it. And that what you, the only thing you can control is what you're feeling and sharing. And so to like throw yourself into those emotions, a hundred and fifty percent. And I love, you know, that that documentary Headbangers Journey, where, um, you know, and the Iron Maiden lead singer, you know, he's talking about like. I play for the person in the, the last row and just play for that person and therefore it goes to everybody. And like, I just love that concept that, you know, playing for the person in the last row. Of course, he's very inspired by, you know, opera and things like that. Um, Bruce Dickinson, sorry, it's been a long day. <laughs> but anyways, um, yeah, so that really, you know, the thing I can't stand is apathetic music. You know, the mm. whole grunge era. I'm like, okay, yeah, they've got some interesting chord changes. They've got some appealing melodies, but I'm sorry. I don't go to a rock concert to see apathy on stage. That is not what it's about. Like, I want that intensity. And that, even in the classical um, world where, you know, our emotional palette is so wide, even if we're talking about, like, the emotion of peacefulness, I still want 150% peacefulness, if that makes sense. So it's basically sure. whatever you're you're portraying, you're portraying it in an exaggerated way, um, in an authentic way, and that that's the inspiration that I always got from all of my favorite bands that I try my best to do whenever I'm on stage. I okay, the conversation has been moving pretty quickly, but I want you to think back about 10 minutes to when Rachel mentioned her version of Metallica's One. Here's a bit of her performance of that with cellist Mike Block from the Ravinia Festival in 2014.
stage. But I should say one more thing about um, the experience of playing in my band and being on stage, um, which is something I talk to young people a lot about these days, um, which is that you know, people say, oh, what did you learn from playing in your metal band? And it was like, okay, well, there's interesting things like being part of a songwriting collective as opposed to classical composers that tend to work you know, just by themselves, you know, mm-hmm. where you each you know, come up with riffs, rearrange the order of the riffs, add parts, you know, just that you work it out as a group, um, the actual composition. Um, and I know people like Mike Block are starting to do that with kind of the, um, you know, the, the, the fusion folk music-y kind of thing going on in Boston, you know, having these, these groups that write collectively. But usually even a folk tune writer just writes their own tune. Um, right. So um, that was interesting. But the thing that I really, um, I think, oh, it didn't change who I was as a performer, but it, it did take me to the next step in the journey, um, perhaps, is that, you know, as much as I always, my whole life, have tried to really communicate from the stage, it's always been um, a little bit hypothetical because you don't know until you get to the end of the piece or the end of the movement how much the audience liked you for sure. You can think you're feeling them, but it's all a guess um, because then either they're going to um, clap you know, enthusiastically or they're going to clap merely politely, and you don't know until you <laughs> finish that last note. And in contrast, when you're you know, playing with a loud rock band because of, you know, the, the volume, it doesn't matter if people move around, they're not going to disturb the sound of the performance. So if people are into what you're doing, they're going to throw the horns, they're going to move closer to the stage, they're going to headbang more vigorously. If they're, if you're not quite reaching them, they're going to like stand there with their arms folded, like, okay, come on, you haven't impressed me yet. And so I call that real time feedback. I guess you could get the same kind, you know, maybe from busking where people are going to stop and listen or throw something in your case. But any opportunity that anybody has to get real time feedback is so valuable because even though it was a different style of music, a different context, I could try to figure out, okay, what am I doing right that I am reaching people or what do I need to be doing better because I don't seem to be reaching them and what can I change up in this moment? And I feel like it made me a better stage performer with everything I do, the fact that I had those experiences um, playing with my band live. Yeah, that's crazy because I, I really didn't stay in the, the classical genre very long. Um, by the time I was a teenager, I'd kind of given up on that kind of music and was way more, I was a trumpet player. Um, I was a trumpet player and a violinist, but, but really sort of by the time I was a mid-teenager, I was much more interested in trumpet because I heard trumpet in rock music. Ah. And that's the stuff I wanted. So that's what I was more focused on. So since I've been, you know, 15 or 16, I've been playing for audiences that were giving that real-time feedback. And, I, and I, you just, you saying that just was like this light bulb moment for me, like, yeah, I guess you wouldn't even know if the audience was digging your classical performance or not until you were done, because there, there wouldn't be any way <laughs> Isn't to Isn't that weird when you think about it now? Yeah. And, I, and other things culturally started to feel very strange. Like I would get get home from, you know, whatever my band was, and we got, we got to do like some incredible things, opening for Megadeth, and, you know, we'd get home from the show, and, and like all over our Facebook would be, you know, fans' pictures, people from the audience who'd taken pictures of the show, and it was so cool to see the action shots of yourself, but also to feel like, like it was this joint community, you with the fans, mm-hmm. you know, that you're all in this together, and it just felt like such a, you know, and, and you know, such buy-in from, like, the fans feeling a certain ownership of the band in a good way. Um, and then I would play a concerto and work super hard, play my heart out. Of course, I would, people would shake my hand at the autograph table, um, and then I would get back to the hotel, open up my Facebook, and it was almost as if the event had not even occurred, because nothing. And I understand you can't be, you know, blocking other people's views. It's a different genre. You can't be disturbing people who are listening to this very detailed experience of this this incredible composition. But, you know, for there to not be some in-between, you know, where maybe you have a cell phone section or people in the back rows can take out their phones or something. It just felt weird that I had no action shots of myself after my shows. And I started to realize how classical really does need to draw upon um, positive things that it can, you know, steal from the non-classical world um, in certain ways. And I think we do see some of those sort of crossover, like a David Garrett type thing where he's where oh, he's, his deal has <laughs> a little more of that sort of rock mentality to it. And I think he's trying to draw both of those crowds, um, but obviously not the same way that, that you would. 
Oh, I'll never forgive him for changing the, the, the meter of Master of Puppets. It's supposed to be one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, you know, and he did the thing, the same thing that the, I think it's the, the vitamin string quartet or whoever, the pre-Earl, Earl wouldn't have let them do that. Um, <laughs> they go, da 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 So you have a nice little 3-8 bar instead of your 5-16. And I love, you know, doing the, the way it's supposed to be with classical colleagues, like a whole symphony, going, well, wait a sec, I have to count what? I'm like, okay, you can do right of spring, you can do this. And, right. <laughs> and then just the, the level of respect that they suddenly have for these, you know, it's not just, you know, blues in four (laughs) but yeah david garrett changed the meter and you just don't do that to metallica (laughs) (laughs) but i mean from a from a audience perspective there i think there's more like that's an amplified concert where it's got a lot of classical elements in it but you also get some more of the audience feedback yeah that you would like if you thought if we had an amplified symphony then the audience could be a little more real-time feedback. Yeah, well, that's the question. Um, To amplify or not to amplify? And I've very consciously chosen, when I do my symphonic versions of rock covers, I do not use rock drums. Um, I very carefully recreate it with symphonic percussion. Um, You know, the the symphonic bills sound darn good in... um, Black Sabbath, by the way, but um, you know, or we might have a little teeny tiny kit for a couple of things, but but not like the big rock drums, not for the for the metal stuff, because then it's going to be too loud. So then you've got to um, you know put a put a um, you know plexiglass around the drummer um, pre-COVID, and then you That's right. and then you've got then you've got to put it uh, put a monitor, and then you've got to amplify the, the these, and then you've got to do sound checks, and it's like oh my god, too much, you know. So and my whole point of the of the outreach shows is to show people that the symphony as it normally sounds is cool. So if people think oh an amplified symphony is cool, they're not going to come back next week and hear that Mahler symphony where it's not amplified. Um, so for but but of course that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with amplifying a symphony. It's just a different artistic experience or a different artistic purpose. And um, what's very interesting right now, I had an um, imitate. I was supposed to solo with the Ann Arbor Symphony this this autumn, and of course that got canceled with the pandemic. And then they very creatively um, figured out a way that they were going to do a socially distanced concert. So they were going to play for a smaller audience but in a larger venue, basically rent a stadium and only have a couple of hundred people all scattered throughout. And then in order to make it work, you know, it's not an acoustic room, they were going to amplify the orchestra. And they're like, you know, look, you know, better to play a concert with some compromises than no concert at all. And I thought that was rather fascinating because they were going to do a straight-up classical program, but with some amplification um, because of the circumstance. Now, of course, Michigan went into even stronger lockdown, and that concert never happened. I have yet to leave my apartment since March. Um, but um, <laughs> that's okay. I've got plenty to keep me occupied. But um, the, the, I thought that was really kind of an interesting thing because, um, and even social media, like unions, and, you know, I mean, I believe in um, the importance of unions in our lives, but I think also there's a conservative element, you know, between the classical music and the union that um, can sometimes hamper progress because you're trying so hard to keep people safe um, that sometimes you're not doing what's necessary to help people advance. And um, not a, that, I'm not criticizing anybody, but I think it's just a, a tricky thing to navigate. And now that we've, we're being forced to stream and we're being forced to post and we're being forced to amplify, I don't think we can go back to just automatically saying no to all of it because how mm-hmm. can we excuse that? And so, um, and of course, when you think about it, we already do amplify every summer music festival. We're talking about the Chicago Symphony at Ravinia, Boston Symphony at Tanglewood, Hollywood Bowl, you know, with the Los Angeles Philharmonic. You're talking about the best orchestras in the world who are right performing, um, you know, huge, important classical music with microphones and speakers. So why do we do it outdoors during the summer, but it's considered sacrilegious to do it indoors? Now, I would rather go and hear an unplugged version of a Beethoven symphony in a good concert hall with the real reverberation. There's a pleasure. It's like a fine wine. You know, there's a, there's a mm-hmm. acoustic pleasure to that sound that I don't want to give up. Um, but could you sometimes amplify it, get some lights going? I mean, I don't see why not. You know, as, as long as it's not 
you know, I mean, there's a difference between doing that and doing some cheesy kind of, and, oh, I don't want to say TSO. Um, I was just about, I was like, it doesn't have to be TSO. (laughs) Uh, um, You know, I mean, that is its own thing too. You know what I'm saying? But I wouldn't want that to be how we know the symphonies or how we know the symphonies only, right? That's a legit thing to do, but we need to also have the the real thing in our lives. Um, Trying to think of a good analogy, but I'm a little too burned out after five hours of interviews, but um, Well, you think too, I mean, there's a value to historic preservation. Like we want to know what it was and what it sounded like. That's why playing Baroque on period instruments is really freaking cool. Yeah, but it's but not then just, we also don't yeah. want to neglect the fact that we do live in the 21st century and we have exactly. electricity and you and know. finding that balance. And actually, it's interesting that you say that about early music. And we don't just do that to connect with history, though. That's very meaningful, um, you know, to think about the humans of the past and the soundscapes of the past and all of that. But also, this is a living, breathing music. That's if it were only a museum art, then it would be like okay, once in a while, okay, that was interesting that's it but you know i think medieval music is something you can still jam on my daughter was is studying medieval rebeck and actually just wrote her first medieval style tune which it absolutely sounds like it could have been written in the 1300s only she just wrote it last month and she's rocking out on it and it's a legit language to still be playing in and super fun and in some ways you know more like you know, jammable than later kinds of classical music. Um, but yeah, it's fun to hear Beethoven on gut strings. It's fun to hear Beethoven on modern violins with vibrato. It would be just, and actually that's a good argument for why the heck not amplify because we're already not playing it on gut strings most of the time. So we're already doing it not authentic. So how is amplifying it more sacrilegious than doing it on metal strings and with vibrato? <laughs> so. It's been a few minutes since Rachel mentioned her trio, Stringendo. But to remind you, it's Rachel, Edgar Gabriel, and Brandon Vamos playing some Led Zeppelin live on the Jerry Lewis Telethon a few years back. Have you tried doing metal? Have you tried playing any Black Sabbath or anything on the the 15th century instruments or 16th? <laughs> have we tried going the, the opposite way? Well, you know, one of my favorite uh, guilty pleasures is that album Sabatum with that medieval choir that does all these like Latin language versions of war pigs and stuff. It's like so oh, perfect because awesome. it's all pentatonic already and it just like right. it works scarily well. Um, but <laughs> no, I haven't because I mean. Um, yeah, I the Del Jesu can work because it's like such a powerhouse, and I can dig in. And other other than that, I want to plug in. I've never plugged in. Now that's an interesting thing. I um, there are a few people who have plugged in gut strung instruments, and now you're really like going futuristic to take an instrument right. that's like that kind of sound, but then amplifying it. Uh, but I mean, again, why the heck not? I think yeah, just being open minded and not not judgmental and finding different things that are satisfying to the artists that are, and that are satisfying to audience members. Um, I think there's an importance to not-for-profit arts because, you know, if you were just going to 
um, only do whatever music was going to sell the most tickets, you'd have, you know, Cardi B playing every concert. And that's not the way it should be, you know, knock on her. Um, But also I think people who do, you know, think about this art can, you know, accidentally get too snobby unjustifiably. And so, yeah, I think... It's funny you think about what was the establishment's reaction to Paganini. I mean, they literally wanted to kill him. Well, he was the first rock star, right? He had the the sell your soul reputation. He had the the um, groupies. He had the whole nine yards. Yep. So, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny when you think about it. And um, yeah, where is the cutting edge music? Um, you know, it used to be classical, and you know, perhaps mm-hmm. it still can be. And I, I'm just so. I think I'm not even the right age to say what's going to happen next because it's the little ones like my daughter who are going to do things that we would have never expected and and um, keep it going. And I mean, I'm not worried about classical because the one thing that's always been consistent in classical is people saying it's not going to be around any longer. And you right. read the article that say classical is in trouble and you read the exact same article from 80 years ago. So it's like, no, nah, I'm yeah. not worried about it. Um, like this music is literally 300 years old. I think it's going to make it another yeah. generation. You know, we still go to Shakespeare plays. Um, <laughs> and Shakespeare plays still have a place in our lives. And so do hip-hop versions of Shakespeare plays and, um, you know, movie versions and whatever. So there's, yeah, I think the more culture, the better. And um, it's good to be open-minded and try different things, figure out what you like to play, figure out what you like to listen to. and and not say that your choices are somehow better than somebody else's choices, but they work better for you. That's it. Now, when it comes to politics, which I won't get into, uh, but I saw the best (laughs) meme the other day, which is saying there's a difference between politics and human rights. So politics is, I think the tax rate should be this, and you think the tax rate should be that, and we can still agree to disagree and hang out. Human rights would be, I think this person shouldn't be allowed to marry the the other consenting adult that they love. And no, I can't agree to disagree with you about that, um, or things like that. Um, But, um, yeah, when it comes to music, I think there's room for all of us. Absolutely. What I do think we need to do is make sure that people have the opportunity to try certain things. And I think it's really sad when kids are listening to music but never getting to create music. And that just doesn't, you know, you go to the Musical Instrument Museum in Phoenix and you see that there is one thing that's a universal across all of humanity is we all have a spoken language and we all have a music. There's not one mm-hmm. corner of the planet that doesn't have a music. And it's just mind-blowing. Classical is one teeny tiny microscopic drop in the bucket of humanity's music. And what's really unfortunate in our society here in modern day US is that we have communities that don't create music, that don't have collective music making, that don't have, um, and you, I mean, that's, you know, you do have some neighborhood music making in certain, you know, in certain, certain parts of the US, you still have people who, you know, fiddle and all of that. You have, you know, kids who are doing hip hop or, you know, different kinds of urban music, so called. but. You do have an awful lot of kids who, unless their parents are of a certain socioeconomic class and, and give them private instrument lessons in which they're playing things that other people wrote, you know, they're not just spontaneously making music. Um, even in, you know, you're seeing in you know, some of the churches where there's not a participatory singing anymore. Where, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, luckily, I go to a kind of church where we do the old hymns and all that, but um, you know, churches where you're observing the praise band. And, you know, that's just such a unfortunate development because at least let's worship by singing t- collectively and well that's um, where i learned how to the, the satb you know i was a, a trained violinist so i was reading treble clef but as you know i get a little older and they got the hymnal there and it's like wait what's this bass clef thing yeah. and my mom who has a master's <laughs> degree in music she she was an organist she would well here's you know here's where f is on the bass clef and i'm like oh well shoot i can read that next thing you know you're learning to sing harmonies by, by singing this SATB exactly. thing, and that's how I learned how to sing, and that's been a huge part of my income, is being a, a, a backup singer in rock bands. Well, that's cool. where I learned how to do that, was in church <laughs> reading these SATB uh, hymn arrangements. And yeah, there are a lot of, well, my church, which has sort of a rock style band and doesn't use hymnals with printed music, you know, my kids aren't getting that developmental experience. Yeah, and um, 
I see a, you know, a lot of kids are like growing up listening to pop music. Maybe they're singing the songs they hear on the radio, but there's not like a community feel to the music making, which I think we've really lost. And there's not as much of a, um, you know, kids, unless they go to a school that has a music program or something, you know, they're, they're just not getting exposed in the same way. You know, we don't have Leonard Bernstein on television anymore. Yes, everything's on YouTube, but people don't know to go to it. So I think we all, the onus is on us to bring, and whether you're talking about classical or you're talking about, you know, great classics of the various rock genres, I think the onus is on us to, you know, bring this music to as many people as we can, especially kids, to show them all kinds of different good music because their lives will be so much richer. For sure. Well, I know it's getting late. Thank you so much for doing this interview. This has been fantastic. Um, maybe tell people where they can find you and, and your music and your book and your foundation and, and all this stuff. Yeah, so um, rbpfoundation.org is my foundation, but then musicbyblackcomposers.org is its own separate website with all kinds of different free resources. And of course, our publications with the educational volumes, the coloring book and the timeline poster. Um, we're always adding more stuff to that musicbyblackcomposers.org site and my of course I've got, I've got the usual Facebook Instagram Twitter um, YouTube and then my website is rachelbartonpine.com but one thing that's been fun recently is my tour dates page which mostly tells you okay this week I'm in this city this week I'm in this city oh okay it looks like you're not coming to my city this year now my tour dates page has been repurposed to a virtual appearances listing and mm. so you can see all of the you know presentations conversations performances whatever I'm doing online some of it is ticketed some of it is free um, anything that's happening is listed there and what's really fun is you can go to the the subsection of the tour dates page which is the the past tour dates um, and anything that still is out there like you know sometimes you play a thing that's on Facebook and then it's still on Facebook and so right. anything that's still up there um, we leave the link and so you can like liter literally binge watch everything I've been up to from March till now. Um, and Which I, I admit that I have done some binge watching of some <laughs> Rachel Barton fine. So yeah, lots, lots of fun stuff. So, um, yeah, I always love to hear from people suggestions for, um, you know, different activities I might engage in, especially with the black composer resources uh, project and yeah. Um, any questions you might have, um, I do have a podcast that I should mention. I think it is li linked to my website. I haven't added to it since Parenthood struck. So kudos, <laughs> kudos to you for keeping your podcast going because I have. That's one thing I've not been able to juggle back into the mix. But I did have um, sixty or eighty episodes before before I pushed pause, and it's called Violin Adventures. Um, all kinds of different topics, and so that's been super fun. And yeah. Yeah. And then you're doing like a weekly live stream too, right? On yeah. your Facebook? It's going to wrap up. Um, actually, the final episode is going to be Christmas Day. Um, I okay. asked my family if they wanted to do an episode on Christmas with my husband doing the lights and cameras and mics and my daughter joining me. And she was like, absolutely. So I loved that her idea of a great Christmas was to play the violin, not to leave it in its case. And, awesome. um, you know, there's only so much unaccompanied music. I mean, I, I, I mean I, I've been able to string it out for, you know, tons of episodes, which not every right. violinist would have enough rep to do that. But, um, you know, I don't want to get into learning new stuff. Um, and I also wanted to keep it light and not play really heavy duty, you know, serious multi-movement. Like, so yeah, so it was time to, to wrap it up. And I'm also starting some new stuff after the beginning of the year. I'm going to be doing a masterclass series on Bach, which is uh, going to be a companion to my, um, to my series that I did for the um, the violin channel, which is also on my YouTube, which is called RBP on JSB, where I have one episode for each of the movements of the entire unaccompanied Bach cycle. It's all in a playlist. So if you search on YouTube R RBP on JSB, you should pull up the playlist, and then you can I have a, you know as many episodes as there are movements. Um, wow. So go pretty in depth on that, and that of course um, corresponds to my edition of the Bach sonatas and partitas that I published, and. Um, what was what else was I going to say? So, oh yeah, and then I'm doing an immersion course about music by black composers for violin, um, where we're going to explore some of the professional performing repertoire in depth to hopefully jumpstart it being more out there in the um, you know the college teaching community and among performers, um, you know, because I've been doing a lot in the the earlier levels of the pedagogical realm, but to you know kind of get this concert repertoire more out there. I already have directories on the website that show you. 
um, what pieces exist and where you can find the music and where you can listen to a recording, but you still don't know what fingerings, what interpretation. Like this music is so um, unknown that we don't have a collective understanding of the the way it's usually played. So to kind of do that together to to try to overcome that that um, barrier to it, you know, achieving full integration into our normal mix of repertoire and. Um, yeah, so looking forward to those and wrapping up my, my concert show, which I'll miss. But I'm sure I'll come up with other ideas. Um, maybe I'll do more collab. This has just been me and my violin in my living room with occasional family members. Got my husband to roped him into a couple of narrations. Uh, but I might. Um, yeah, that was great. On Nahum, that was fantastic. Oh, he has that low voice, so it works real yes, well. Yes, he does. Real well. Um, and um, yeah, I might do more collaborative things back and forth. I've been on others' shows, like I was on Bruce Molsky's show, the great Appalachian mm -hmm. fiddler, Mark O'Connor's show. Um, you did one with Daniel, right? Yeah, that was that was really sweet. We actually did a we did a socially distanced um, improv, which blew yeah, my mind. Yeah, it was killer. Well, you know, we couldn't have done it if there was a beat, because then we wouldn't have had the same beat, and the right. listener would have been like, "What is going on?" Yeah, you just got you got to lay a drone and. But yeah. it was like I played something, and then he would play something back, and it was actually like swirling around, and it actually, I was just like, "Really? Like he's in some other state, and we're here. We are on." Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was that was amazing. only only Daniel could have pulled that off. Yeah, I swear. exactly right. That's like who he is. Uh, to do the un unthinkable. And, and we'll have to do a stump the violinist where they just hand you a piece of music you've never seen before and you get a sight read it for people. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I have been blessed to be able to um, learn music extremely quickly, which is very lucky because then I can learn more music and have yeah. more cool music to play. So, And I also have extremely sensitive perfect pitch. So when, you know, when Earl writes all those high notes with dissonances, I never get disoriented. Um, that's, though it's, that's crazy. Though it's also a, a handicap when I go to an orchestra and they're at 442 and then I'm I'm exactly flat <laughs> on every single note <laughs> and I have to like practice for four hours in a hotel conference room in the middle of the night to try to reorient myself so I'm not completely out of tune and somebody who didn't have perfect wow. pitch would have been able to get sleep that night so I'm like oh how is right. this a how is this a good thing? Yeah. <laughs> crazy. All right well thank you so much and uh I'll be talking to you soon. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me on the show. It's been a yeah, great pleasure. And thanks for doing this show, by the way. It's great service oh, you're absolutely. doing to the violin world and in so many ways, including this show. So um, hats off. So here we are, another rock star violinist in the books, almost. So please don't forget to subscribe, like, comment, and share on whatever platform you're on. That helps us a lot. Also, go check out Rachel's website, her socials, and her foundation. There are links included in the description. And before we go, Rachel mentioned that her husband, Greg, did some narration at the beginning of a performance a couple weeks ago. This is Rachel and Greg performing Nahum by David Wallace. We'll see you next time with another rock star violinist. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkhart. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. And the Lord will by no means acquit the wicked. His way is in a whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are dust of his feet. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, piles of dead, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. Because of the countless debaucheries of the well-favored harlot, 
gracefully alluring, mistress of sorcery, who enslaves nations through her debaucheries and peoples through her sorceries. Nineveh is devastated. Who will bemoan her? There is no assuaging your hurt. Your wound is mortal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For who has ever escaped your endless cruelty? Thank <laughs> you.